Now, if we were to think about it, there's all kinds of things that might cause division or separation between people or groups and, and uh, you know, things that people have opinions on that are so strong that when you get people together and they talk about it, they, you know, there's a disagreement where, where it's not only a different opinion, but, but we just can't get along over it. And uh, you know, some people will joke about, you know, well, when we talk to, about loyalties and family loyalties, well, <laughs> there's some things that just, you just can't get beyond. You know, just, you know there's that, that house divided. And, uh, and, and I think about it, it, I mean, it's pretty a relevant issue. It's, you know, how do you raise your kids? You know, where's the loyalty? And, and I've got to admit, I, I, I married a, a woman from that state up north. Um, but, but fortunately, she didn't go to that unmentionable school, and so it's not really an issue in, in our family. And uh, now we joke about that, but we have issues even more so. Politics has become one of those issues. You know, that when you get into a family, if you have different uh, people, even in a family, different people on different sides of the political argument, you know, next thing you know, there's suddenly, it's hard to have a respectful disagreement. I mean, it often gets into shouting matches and name calling and, and uh, it's terrible. But, but out of all the things that have caused division over the centuries, nothing or no one has been more divisive than Jesus Christ. And, and this is a truth that was true not only during Jesus' time, then, but it's something that when we look over the centuries up until our current day, it's a truth that's there to, uh, to us to our day. On the one hand, even then, there are people, then and now, there are people that love Jesus, respect him so much that they want to give their whole life to follow him, to obey him, give their life to his cause. At the other hand, even then, there were people that hated him so much that they became obsessed, obsessed with finding a way to kill him. Now, in the 2,000 years since his life and death, Jesus has continued to be the most divisive force in human history, dividing families, dividing cultures, dividing nations. And one, on the one hand, we might look at this and we might think that it seems surprising because wasn't he the one who was called the Prince of Peace? Isn't he one whose ministry is defined by love? And, and how could that Jesus be the cause of such division? In reality, Jesus himself predicted this would be the case. He predicted that people would hate us because we love him, because they hated him first. Now, the reason is because at the courts, it's because of the claims that he makes. Jesus claims to be God, and when he claims to be God, he calls for our total allegiance. He calls for worship. And if we properly understand these claims, what we've got to realize is that there is no middle ground. There's either total commitment or there's total rejection. It, it's, it's the claims of Jesus, that's what causes this division. And, uh, and we're gonna see this even in the, in the verses that we're looking at today. You know, that we saw earlier in chapter seven that he talks about that he is from God, that he's claiming to be God. We saw last week in verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, if Jesus wasn't God, what kind of man talks that way? I mean, the fact is, it, no, no sane person would talk this way. Come to me, and out of your, your heart will flow rivers of living water. You know, I'm going to fill your deepest need, your deepest soul need, your deepest thirst. Come to me, and I'll fill it. These aren't the claims of a man. Now, Maybe it's a man that's, you know, that has a scam or maybe a crazy person, and, but a sane person wouldn't make these kind of claims. 
What he's saying is that he's God. He's saying that, no, realize that you were created by me. You were created for a relationship with God, but because of sin. And the Bible teaches that because of our sin, this relationship we were created for was broken. This relationship that we were created for, this God-shaped vacuum is suddenly is, is, is empty because this relationship is broken by our sin. And Jesus is saying, only in me can that be restored. This is your deepest soul need, and only I will be able to fix this. Only if you come to me and ask me to forgive your sins, only by the, my death on the cross can your sins be forgiven. Only in that way can your relationship with God be restored. Only in that way can you have that, that deepest thirst of your soul fulfilled. Man, that's an incredible claim, but that's what he says. And it was because it was understood to be this incredible claim that people were divided. And so we look even in verse 43, it says it explicitly, there was a division amongst, uh, among the people over him. And so these people were divided. And if we look at the chapter, what we see is not only that they were divided, but it tells us how they were divided. It tells us something of the different opinions about Jesus that people had. And what's really interesting is when you look at this, the conclusions that they came to then are pretty much still the same conclusions that people come to now that people are still divided about Jesus. And, and the reality is that the, the reason that they come to the same conclusions then as now is because they're really the only options that we have. So we may change our wording, we may express it differently, but if you understand Jesus, if you understand his claims, there are only a limited number of options of how we can respond to that. Now, the most popular opinion, I think if we were to go out and ask people, you know, what do you think about Jesus? The most popular opinion then and now is that you know, people would say, well, we don't really believe he's God, we don't really believe that, but he was a great moral teacher. Now, but if you think this through, I want you to think it through. It's actually an impossible claim. It's, it's, I, this opinion, he was a great moral teacher, is very popular, but it's really something that is intellectually inconsistent. We see this uh, even here in verse 12, back in verse 12, chapter 7. They're saying, you know, he's a good man. We look at verse 40, we read, when they heard these words, some of the people said, this is really the prophet. You know, they're saying, okay, this is a, this is a good man. This is a prophet. This is someone who speaks God's truth. He's not God, but we think that he speaks good, biblical, you know, moral, godly truth. But again, here's what we've got to realize, that if we really look honestly at Jesus, at his ministry, at his claims, he could not be a good moral teacher. It's impossible. And it's impossible because when you look at his ministry, you see that repeatedly he claimed to be God. He claimed to be the creator. He claims to be God, not only claiming to be God, but claiming that we should then worship him and submit to him. And so that he said several, numerous times, if anyone uh, loses his life for my sake, he will find it. He calls us to lose our life for his sake. And you say, well, other leaders call us to give up our life. You know, you know, um, you know Winston Churchill you know, called people to you know, blood, sweat, and tears. And Well, no, he wasn't calling that for his sake. He was calling that for England's sake. Jesus doesn't call us to do it for a, a other sake, other than himself. Lose your life for me. And when you look at this, if you, if you really are honest with it, you've got to come to the conclusion that no one who would claim to be God, who wasn't God, could be called a good moral teacher. I mean, if somebody came along today and said, I am God, you need to follow me, you need to lose your life for me, we would look at that person and say, 
of all the things he could be, a good moral teacher isn't one of them. Yeah, there have been people who have claimed to be God. There have been people that have said that we should follow him. And, you know, but the idea is that, no, those people were, you know, they, they were frauds or they were lunatics. And Now, some people have said, well, no, Jesus didn't really claim to be God. And, and that's a common argument, that they've come back and they say, no, he made these vague statements and people wrongly interpreted these vague statements to be a claim to divinity after his death. However, again, when you read the gospel accounts, that's not an option that's put before us. If you look at the gospel accounts, what you have is that numerous times Jesus makes a claim to be God. And then the people who were listening to him interpreted his claim to be exactly what it was, that he was claiming to be God. And they accused him of blasphemy. Let me give you an example. We're in John 7. We're going to see in a couple weeks in John chapter 8. Jesus is, is teaching. And in the midst of this teaching, he says this. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Not I was, I am. And he's claiming the name of Yahweh, of God, all the way back from, you know, from, from Exodus. And, and they understood that he was actually claiming divinity. So it says in the next verse, so they picked up stones to throw at him, and Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Now here's what you want to re need to realize. If Jesus was really making a cryptic statement that wasn't intending to claim to be God, and then people interpreted him to be God, you know, and then they pick up stones and they sing, that's blasphemy, the first thing he would have said is, well, no, wait a second, you guys misunderstood me. That's not what I'm saying. He would have defended that. He would have backed away. But the fact is, is that he made a statement. Everybody interpreted it as a claim to be God himself. And Jesus said, yeah, you got me right. That's, that's what I'm saying. Now, I think that people embrace the idea of Jesus being a good teacher because they want to affirm the truth of Jesus' moral teaching while rejecting the idea that he's God and the claims that that would make upon their life. You know, if, God, if Jesus is really God, you know, then we have to listen to him and not only like what he says, we have to submit to him, we have to honor him. And people don't like that. C.S. Lewis um, talked about this, and I think he probably said it as, as, as well as anyone uh, in a, a well-known book, in a, a well-known quote in his book, Mere Christianity. Let me read what he had to say. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the, the, the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. Any man who said the sort of things that Jesus said would, be, would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says that he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit on him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now, what Lewis really says here is that he kind of references is he can't, he can't be a moral teacher, but he said there are a couple other options. That one's the impossible one. That's intellectually inconsistent. But there are a couple options that, you know, you'd say that, that are possible. They're not all necessarily equal. They're, they're, they're all things that would be at least intellectually consistent to say if he made these claims, if we look at that, 
then, then what are the possible responses that we could have to these claims? And so we're going to see that, there's, that, that he kind of references that there's three. Uh, the, the first is that he says that, is that we could reject him as a lunatic. We could look at him and see that, okay, he's making these claims, but he's, he thinks he's God, but he's not. He's self-deluded. In fact, we see this if you go back in verse 20 of chapter 7. The crowd answered, you have a demon who's seeking to kill you. There were some people saying, you're demon-possessed, you're a lunatic, you're crazy. And, and we see that in, when we look at this, that, that is a possible option. You could look at that and say, here's someone who really thought that he was God, that he was really sincere. He's calling people to, to, you know, to follow him, to give their life for him, but he was deluded. And again, there have been in history many people who have thought they're God. They've made the claim to be God. But we would rightly see them as not only self-deluded, but, but crazy, as insane. Now, here's the question. For those that would choose this option, how do you then square the idea that, you know, that he was a lunatic, he was crazy, with the fact, that of, Jesus, with the fact of Jesus' moral teaching? That Christians and non-Christians alike would pretty much agree that he was the greatest moral teacher of all time, that what he taught was, was you know, priceless, it was timeless. And how could such great teaching, how could such great example come from a man that was crazy? As C.S. Lewis said, that was like, thought he was a poached egg. It doesn't work, but it's a possibility. Well, the second option is that he wasn't a lunatic, but that he was a liar. And likewise, we should reject him as such. And again, we see this even in these verses. And back in verse 12, it says, there were some muttering amongst him, uh, you know, saying that he's a good man. Others said, no, he's leading people astray. Or we see here in verse 41, the passage we're looking at today. He said, some said, he is a Christ, but some said, is the Christ come from Galilee? Basically, you know, there's some people that are looking at it and saying, and we know what he's claiming, but he's lying about it. That's not who he was. It, it, it's not that he was mad. It's not that he thought that he was God. He knew that he wasn't God, but he was, a, he was a great salesman. He was a fraud. And he's making these great claims to be God because he wanted to get people to follow him. And he wasn't self-deceived, but he was deceiving others. And really, if you look at this, it's actually kind of closely related to the idea of him being lunatic. In both cases, he's deceiving. In one case, he's self-deceived and then deceiving others. In the other case, he's, he's not self-deceived. He's just, he's, he's deceiving others. In, in which case, he is the demon. He is, he's a terrible man. He's an evil man. And if you look at the idea, if, if you have anybody who is not God, who claims to be God, who claims this kind of obedience to try to get a following, we would be rightly you know, right in describing such a person as an evil person. And, and we know of in history people who have claimed, if not divinity, that kind of loyalty, that everybody needs to follow him. And people like Hitler, you need to swear you know, your allegiance to him. And those were evil people. But again, how do, you, how do you put this together, this idea if Jesus was really a liar that we should reject, how do you again uh, square that with the, with the reality of him being such a great moral teacher, a great example? In fact, we see this conflict even here. If we look at verse 45, we're going to come back to this in a minute, but you have these guards that the religious leaders had sent to arrest Jesus. And we're in verse 45, we're told that they come back, and the officers came to the chief priests and the Pharisees said, said to them, why didn't you bring them? And the officers said, no one ever spoke like this man. And in a sense, the chief priests, they're saying, why didn't you arrest him? We sent you to arrest him. Don't you know that he's a fool? Don't you know that he's, a, you know, that he's crazy? Don't you know that he's a, a fraud? 
that he's out there deceiving people. And why didn't you arrest them? And their response is, we went to arrest him and we heard him. And no one's ever spoke like this person. You know, the idea that he's a, that he's a demon-possessed you know, fraud, that he's crazy or that he's a liar, it doesn't hold water because it doesn't match with the person that we see and we hear. No, this man, his, his life, his teaching, they're unlike anything else we've ever heard. These are the, the chief, you know, the guards of the temple. They've heard all the religious leaders. They've heard all the Pharisees. They've heard all their teaching, and they're basically coming back and saying, we've heard what you've had to say, and what he says yours, yours doesn't even match up. His is unique. And so what we've got to realize is that when we look at these options, this is what Lewis is saying, we've got a couple options. We, we want to say that he's a great moral teacher, but that, that's not intellectually consistent. You really can't hold that. Well, then you could say, well, he was a, a lunatic and we have to reject him, but again, that doesn't seem to match. And we could reject him as a liar, but that seem, doesn't seem to match. The only other option is to accept him for who he is, to embrace him as Lord, to accept him as God the creator of our souls whom we're created to have a relationship with, to see the claims that he makes in, 40, in, in 37 and 38 when he says, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me out of his heart will flow living, rivers of living water to recognize that those words are true, that it's only in Jesus Christ will we ever find those deepest soul needs of our heart fulfilled. And that's the only other option that we have. You see, the question isn't just if we believe him to be God. The question is, do we accept him as such? In a sense, do we accept him as not only Lord in theory, but if he really is God, then do we accept him as our God, our Lord? In John chapter 1, John began this whole gospel by saying this, John 1.12, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. My friends, that's what he's inviting us to. To not have a right theology or theory, but to say, no, have you accepted him? Have you believed in his name? Have you become a child of God? Is he your Lord? Is he your God? Now, as we dive further into this, what's really interesting is that what you see is that, is that people reject Jesus. It, it, you know, again, that's always been a minority that really accepts that. And the people that don't accept him as Savior, as Lord, ultimately come back and go to the other extreme of rejecting him. But what's interesting is that seldom do people really honestly admit the real reason. You know, that, that they're going to have all kinds of excuses. But what, what this passage teaches, and what I think is true, is that there's always something, there's a repressed reason. There's, there's, there's something, a conclusion that people know that deep down is true, but, but it's repressed, and it's behind, but it's behind all the rejections. You see, when we look at the rejection of Jesus, uh, you know, what ultimately makes people not only reject him to say, well, no, I don't believe that, but, but reject him with hatred, so that again, even here we read in verse 43 that there was a division amongst the people. Some of them wanted to arrest him. So there's a division. It's not like that some people had different opinions. It's like some people wanted to accept him and some people were so opposed to him they wanted to arrest him. We're told early in the chapter that they wanted to kill him. And why is it that they responded that way? It's because deep down they understood his claims and they knew that if his claims were true, then he was an incredible threat. Then and now. 
You see, Jesus' claim to be God always will threaten our own agenda and our own autonomy for them and for us. You see, if he is God, if everything that he speaks is actually true, then it's, then it's true for all of us. It's true whether we like it or not. It's, it's, it's what is reality. And again, when we talk about the importance of having a relationship with God, it's because we're conforming our lives and our souls to what is true, what is real. But when they understood this, they understood, okay, if this is really true, that means that what he's saying is not only true, but we have a responsibility and, and, you know, to, to conform, to obey him, to, to, to treat him as God. And so why is it that they treated him so harshly? Why is it that they still respond to even followers of Christ so harshly? Jesus said in John 15, 18, he said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it has hated you. And he's saying, understand that people are going to respond to me and to all that will follow in the days to come. Why is it? You know, it's amazing. You, you know, you hear about, you know, this group attacked and this group and persecuted. You know, every research shows that the most persecuted group in the world without question is Christians. You don't hear that in today's society. But there is more persecution, you know, more torture, more attacks against Christians than any other group in the, in the world. And that's not only worldwide, but you see even in our culture, attacks upon Christianity of those who have, have positions of faith. I mean, let me even, you know, I can see a couple examples even this recently. It's been interesting that in the last um, year or two, you've had senator, or, or people that were nominated for positions, especially of judge or in, in a government, and you've had senators that have attacked them because of their Christian faith. And because you are a member of this church, because you hold to these Christian beliefs, well, you're not qualified to serve in a position. You're not qualified to serve as a, a judge. You're not qualified to serve in a position of government. Christians should be excluded from positions of influence in the opinions of many people in our political uh, positions today. Or, or just even, a, it was a couple months ago, if you remember uh, Mike Pence's wife, our, our vice president, his wife took a job teaching at a Christian school. And they were attacked because this Christian school believes the Bible, and it believes biblical morality as taught in the Bible. And they were attacked, and we're, you know, we're told that you know, this was terrible, and he should resign as a vice president because his wife is teaching at a school that believes the Bible. The Bible's a terrible thing. My friends, people are attacking Christianity because they understand that if Jesus claimed to be God, our, and if he is God, then that will threaten our agenda and autonomy. It will, it will threaten that. And so that's why they've attacked, attacked Christ in his day and why they still attack believers to our day. Now, what's interesting, though, is that when we look at this, that's a repressed conclusion. Deep down, I think people know it, but they don't want to admit it. They don't want to say, I resent the claims of Christ because he's God. What they do is they attack Christ and his followers for different reasons, for reasons that I think we're going to see even in this passage, that there's the same reasons that people use today, that are very much self-deceptive. They're even hypocritical. And, and let's look at this. You know, what's interesting is that, is that all of these, you know, people, these arguments that the religious leaders are making against Christ and his followers are, are incredibly self-deceptive. They're, they're saying things about other people that are true of themselves. In fact, I think we're going to see that some of these things, at times, it almost sounds more like the reasoning of a young child, you know, whining, than, than a real argument. And because they're trying to avoid the reality of why they're rejecting Jesus Christ. Now, a few minutes ago, let's see how it plays out here in John 7. A few minutes ago, we saw in verse uh, 45 this idea that these officers come back to the Pharisees 
And uh, they've been sent to arrest Jesus, and they're empty-handed. And so let, let's go back, and if you just pick it up where we started, you're, you're kind of like, well, what, what, you know, that's in the middle of the story. We need to go back a couple of verses to remind you what happened. Um, in verses 28 and 29, Jesus claims to be God. And in verse 31, we're told that the crowd heard his teaching and saw his miracles, and many of them began to believe in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man is doing? So they're looking at it and saying, Jesus, he matches up with the prophecies about the Messiah. Maybe he's true. And the response of the religious leaders was they didn't want to actually look at Jesus and listen to him. They just were threatened. They're like, well, if people start following him, they're going to leave us. So we see in verse 32 that the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest them. Now, we're told when they got there, then they didn't arrest him right away, but they, they, they listened to him. And probably what was happening is that they were looking for a, a moment when he wasn't surrounded by the crowds where they could arrest him and not cause a, cause a fuss. And so they listened to him for a while, and that's the context of then what happens in verse 45 and 46. After being there, they, they, you know, they come back and they haven't arrested him. And so verse 45, the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring them? They're basically saying, you know, we sent you to arrest them. Why didn't you, you know, where is he? Why didn't you do what we, you're supposed to do? And the response in verse 46 is that no one ever spoke like this man. Now that's an incredible response because you got to remember, they're working for these religious leaders. They're in trouble. They've, they've been told to do something. They've come back and they've not done it. And they could have given all kinds of arguments, you know, cover, kind of cover themselves of, well, you know, the crowd was there and we don't want to cause a riot. And, but that's not what they said. They said, no one ever spoke like this man. And remember that he, he, they're talking to the religious leaders. They're looking at the people and saying, you guys, you know, you guys talk about spiritual truths, but not like Jesus. He's got truth, you don't. And so then they turn and they react and they respond, they attack. And the attacks that they make, again, are the attacks that people still make against the followers of Christ to this day. First of all, that the followers of Christ are deceived. Look at again verse 47. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that, uh, that, that does not know the law is a curse. Now, now, here's what I want you to see. They're coming and they're saying, you're deceived, but I want to show you even from this passage that they're the ones that are deceived, that they're the ones that are blind. Go back a couple verses before this. Go to verse 42. And look what it says. The people are, are you know, looking at Jesus. They're beginning to reject him. And look at one of the reasons. Has, has the scripture... Has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem to the village where David was? Now, the good news is that they're actually, in this case, quoting prophecy. They're actually saying, well, we know that the Bible says about the Messiah that he will be from the offspring of David, that he will be from Bethlehem. And so, you know, so we're going to match Jesus against that. They're quoting it's, you know, Micah 5.2. And they're right in quoting the prophecies. And they would have been right in evaluating Jesus against those prophecies to say, okay, does he actually match up? And the reality was that Jesus actually was from the line of David. We have in Matthew and we have in Luke the lineage that actually both Mary and Joseph were from the lineage of David. They were both from the line of David. He was actually born in Bethlehem. And if anybody would have asked, they would have known that. 
So the prophecies that they're quoting to disqualify Jesus actually qualify Jesus. What happens? See, they're looking at it and they're saying, well, we know as an adult he was raised in Galilee, so therefore we assume that he must have been born there. And they never even asked if he was from the line of David. They just assumed. And why? Because that's what they wanted to be true. That's what they wanted to be true. They weren't looking at it and saying, here's the prophecies and someone, so let's actually look into the prophecies and find out what his lineage is. Let's find out where he's born so we can evaluate it that way. Now, what they're saying is, we already know the answer. We already know the conclusion. And so we don't want to know any more than that. So if we can look at partial information and say, well, he was raised in Galilee, close our ears. I don't want to hear anything else. I know, I already know, you know, it's just a little child. And don't tell me, don't tell me. I mean, that's what they're doing. They're, they're blind, they're deceived. It's, you know, don't bother me with the facts. I already know the answer. And it's the same thing that we hear so often from people today. I'll talk to people all the time. And again, I'll talk to people who will argue against Christianity. And they'll talk to me about, you know, why they disagree. And here's an argument. And I'll answer that argument. And seldom do they come back. Almost never do they come back. Well, that's a good point. I need to look deeper. No, it's, it's let me give you another argument. Let me give you another argument. They really don't want to know. Their arguments aren't questions of asking, they're, 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 they're excuses for rejecting. Well, I've looked into it, I hear people all the time, I've looked into it and I've, okay, well, how have you, what have you read? They've not looked into it. They read a book that told somebody else about their arguments of why Christianity was wrong. They've never actually read any books that talk about Christianity and they don't want to know. And again, I've shared this, I think, recently. I, what I'm learning to ask people in these discussions is, to, is really try and get deeper to the heart you're trying to sideline me with all these arguments that you really want to know. If I could prove to you that Christianity were true, would you believe? Is it that you don't believe it's true or you don't want it to be true? And you would reject it even if I could prove it? You see, that's the first argument. You know, they're deceived, but they're deceiving themselves. The second argument that they, that they make is that, is that the people that are following Jesus, well, they're the foolish crowd. But instead, you know, you should follow the wisdom of the elite. Look at verse 47 again. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. You know, basically they're coming back and they're saying, you know, um, you know we're the cultural elite. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, the authorities. And we're the, we're the smart ones. We're the educated ones. And if you look at it, you know, you don't have any of us following him. It's just the ignorant crowd, the people who don't know the law, the people that are accursed. And because they're stupid, that's why they're following Jesus. You know, a couple things that are interesting here is that if you go to verse 50, it says that, that a guy named Nicodemus begins to try to defend Jesus, who was a Pharisee. And so here's someone who believed, but, but Nicodemus wouldn't come out publicly because he knew he would be attacked if he did come out publicly. And again, I see this so often in our time today, I, you know, especially like issues of you know, creation and evolution. And we'll hear this argument, and I'll hear people that will talk about, you know, we're the cultural elite, we know better, you're, st- you're the stupid crowd. And, and they will sit there and, and just, um, the fact is, there are numerous scientists that believe in, in creation. There are many scientists that believe in that. But the problem is, is that if you write a paper saying that you believe in creation, you could lose your job. 
And so then you have somebody write a paper and then they get fired and they say, well, no respected scientist believes in creation because we fire all the ones that do and we intimidate all the other ones that really do, but they're afraid to admit it because they don't want to lose their job. And what you have here is this whole idea of saying, we're the elite, you know, and, if, and it, it's not that there aren't well-educated people, but we're just going to write them off because you're not as smart as we are. And it really plays into the last thing that they do here, and that's that they, you know, they not only say, well, we're the elite, but then they, they call people names. They, they resort to name-calling rather than a real evaluation of the truth. Look at it, verse 50. Nicodemus, who had gone before him, uh, to him before, this again, one of the Pharisees, one of the religious leaders, and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And they replied, are you from Galilee too? Search that no prophet arises from Galilee. So they come and they say, well, are you from Galilee? Now, Galilee was the northern part of the town. It was, you know, the, the country. It was the rural town, the less educated town. And it was, you know, it was kind of them saying, so, you know, are you a hick from, you know, West Virginia or from the, you know, from the rural, you know, that's basically what they're doing. Hey, we're from the, you know, we're the educated people. I thought you were educated, Nicodemus. Are you just a dumb Galilean? They're, they're resorting to name calling. And not only that, they say, search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. They're saying, you know, if you look in the Bible, no, no prophet ever comes from Galilee. Well, if you actually look in the Bible, there are prophets from Galilee. There are clear passages, and in, in, in probably the most clear is that you look in 2 Kings 14, it talks about Jonah, who came from Galilee. But, but here they are, they're, again, misquoting Scripture, misusing it. And notice Nicodemus' challenge. Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? You're the ones that are talking about defending the law. And I'm sitting there saying, well, the law doesn't call, talk about doing it. It means that we should actually evaluate him by Scripture. And what do they do in the, you know, the verse right before? Well, the crowd, they're ignorant. They don't know the law. And meanwhile, the people that ignore the law, Nicodemus says, you're supposed to know the law. And says, well, we just want to ignore it. We don't want to actually evaluate the facts. We'll just call names. My friends, I see again this all the time. I see people that will talk about, you know, when we talk about Christianity, and you know, I'll talk with people, and next thing you know, it's, it's again, it's almost a child. You're science denier, you're this, you're, you know, you're supernatural. You're, and, and they just call names. And it's the same attacks that they used then that they use today. Not based on truth, not based on a study of truth. Let me just wrap this up by, you know, really calling us to say, okay, what is our response? If we look at this, I think, I love especially when you, the, um, you know, the, these guards, you know, they had been sent to Jesus, to arrest Jesus. They heard him. They were supposed to arrest him. They went against their bosses. And they come back and they say, no, we couldn't arrest him because no one has ever spoken in this way. And, and what had they heard him say? They heard him say that incredible invitation, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me. He looked at them, the people that were there to arrest Jesus, and I think he, knowing what they did, he looked at them and says, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me. And he speaks to every one of us, no matter, no matter how hostile we've been to Christ in our past, no matter what attitude we come across, you know, come, come to him with, he says, no, here's an invitation of grace. If you're thirsty, let him come to me. And in me, you'll find your thirst quenched. In me, you'll find forgiveness of your sins. In me, you'll find relationship with Christ. And they say, no one ever spoke this way. And so let me just get three quick challenges. Number one is when we look at this and we look at the claims of Christ, first of all, give an honest evaluation to his claims. 
and recognize that, yes, he does make these claims, but just don't write them off because you heard somebody else that write them off or, or don't write them off because you don't like them. Look at who he is. Look at the claims that he made. Again, what's amazing to me is that I am, it's so rare for me to talk to someone who rejects Christ and, and, and everybody will claim, oh, I've looked into it. Well, tell me how you looked into it. Tell me what books you read. Nobody has. And it's so rare to talk to someone and say, are you willing to give an honest appraisal? And it's amazing how there are so many stories of people that have given that honest appraisal that come back and they say, no, I, 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 I'm a believer. That, that he isn't just a good teacher, he's not a lunatic, he's not a liar, he's, he's the Lord and he's the Lord of my life. I want to challenge you to do that. And in, in fact, in the back of the notes and the questions, there's some resources there. And, and these are great resources for those of us who are believers. But also for those, if you're there, if you are not a believer, if you're not sure, I challenge you to pick up one of these books. Um, books on, on, on talking about, you know, defending our faith and understanding our faith. The Case of Christ and the Case of Creator by a guy named Lee Strobel, who set out to prove that Christianity was wrong. And he gave an honest evaluation, and he, was, he, he, was, he changed his mind. And this is his story of how he, in his honest appraisal, was led towards Christ. Same thing, Cold Case Christianity is the same, same story by a guy named J. Warner Wallace. Same thing, written from a different perspective. God's crime scene, those are, 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 the second of those books are both deal more with, with creation and the evidence behind creation. If you want to go deeper, there's some books that are even a little heavier there. Jesus Amongst Other Gods, uh, um, Jesus Amongst Sectoral Gods by Ravi Zacharias, and there's a couple other books that are great books if you want to go deeper, if you want to be more scholarly. So first of all, give an honest appraisal. Now, for those who are believers, we have to expect and prepare for opposition. Don't be surprised that we're going to have this opposition. Don't be surprised that people hate Jesus Christ. They hated them then. Jesus said they will hate us now. People will attack our faith. And the question is, do we know how to answer that? Don't be intimidated. And the arguments that people will make, they'll call us names and they'll say, well, you're not smart, you're not cultural elite, you're part of the crowd. And you know, We need to learn to think biblically. And again, I'm going to, I've got a couple other resources there. Specifically here, I'm going to suggest some podcasts. Things that, you know, these are all ones that I listen to. These are ones that help me think biblically about practical issues in our world today. Uh, you know, if they're there in the back of the notes, and the one that I most highly recommend is called The Briefing with a guy named Albert Moeller. And it's just as, it's a, a daily analysis of news and events from a Christian biblical worldview perspective. How do we look at our world from a Christian perspective? Uh, the world and everything in it is like a, it's a half hour, and it's NPR, you know, the, um, the NPR half-hour newsletter. It's, it's the same thing from a Christian perspective. It's a half-hour news article from a, a biblical uh, perspective. Breakpoint is just a four-minute, you know, one issue each day. Um, Java Julie, it's not only that Julie is, is, is part of our church, she does a great job taking probably the most controversial issue of our time, sexuality, and saying, how do we think of this from a biblical perspective? And so I'd encourage you, especially if you're younger, you know, you we all, you know, you're listening to podcasts. You've got all these ideas that are coming to your mind. Let me encourage you to make a commitment to do something that's going to help you think from a biblical perspective. These are great resources. But then ultimately, we each have to decide who Jesus is to you. That we recognize that he claims to be God. You see, and the question isn't just do we believe that he is God, but have we accepted him as our God? He claims to be Lord. Have we accepted him as our Lord? 
to recognize that he claims to be God that came to restore this relationship with God that was broken by sin. And that we can know that relationship through acceptance of what he did at the cross. In a moment, we're going to take communion. It's the picture of what it, reminding us what he did. And it's that invitation to accept him. Thanks for joining us. If you have any questions about what we talked about, Jesus Christ, our church, or anything else, connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or by email. We'd love to hear from you.